Let's talk about sarcoma, a podcast that looks at the expected, the unexpected, and everything in between post-sarcoma diagnosis. Brought to you by Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation. With me, your host, Michael Whipper-Whipfley. And me, Catherine Mahoney. Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of the podcast. Let's talk even more about sarcoma, a podcast that shines a spotlight on a sarcoma diagnosis. The expected, the unexpected, and everything in between. Brought to you by Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation. I'm your host, Catherine Mahoney. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Professor David Thomas, Head of Genomic Medicine at the Garvin Institute, an NHMRC Principal Research Fellow and CEO of OMICO, the Australian Genomic Cancer Medicine Centre. Professor David Wood, Professor of Surgery, School of Medicine, University of Western Australia. And lastly, Professor Glenn Marshall, Clinical Lead for Zero, Head of the Embryonal Cancer Research Group and Translation Research at Children's Cancer Institute, and a paediatric haematologist and oncologist at Kids Cancer Centre, Sydney Children's Hospital. Thank you for listening. And if you would like more information on socket to sarcoma, you can go to www.sockettosarcoma.org.au. You can also find out more at Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation, which is www crbf.org.au and you can also go back to season one or two of the podcast thanks very much for listening professor david thomas welcome back to the podcast it's nice to be back Catherine. lovely to have you back on I'm, i can't believe you i can't believe you agreed again but you did so thank you <laughs> now david Firstly, congratulations on your recent grant in recognition of the outstanding work you've been doing within the area of genomic screening and personalised therapeutics in Australia. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been a long road to get here, but the future's looking bright. How is this grant likely to change the trajectory for sarcoma patients in particular? Well, it um, massively increases the capacity of the system to provide personalized treatments for patients with advanced cancers. We're going from covering currently about 4% of the population with advanced cancers in this country. By advanced, I mean people who are dying from cancer Mm -hmm. because it's become incurable. And this new initiative, which we call Prospect, will increase that to between 15 and 20%. So perhaps five to six-fold increase in numbers. And sarcoma patients comprise the single largest group of patients currently in our program. So they stand disproportionately to benefit, as do patients with rare cancers in general. Can you explain to our listeners a little more about genomic screening? I can't even get my teeth out. I'll say that again. Um, (laughs) can Can you explain to our listeners a little more about genomic screening and the crucial part it plays for those living with a rare cancer? Cancer is fundamentally a genetic disease. I don't know if your listeners are aware, but um, the, the genes that uh, we are born with um, determine everything about us, from our eye colour to our height to our susceptibility to diseases like cancer. And what happens in a cancer is that a normal cell goes bad, and it goes bad by mutating that genetic code that lies within that cell and making it instruct the cell to behave badly. Now, uh, there's, it's quite a complex, uh, uh, that code is extremely complicated. 
Um, and until recently, we haven't had the ability to be able to understand the changes that are going on inside cancer cells. But now we can. And more importantly, we can use that information in individual patients to understand why that cancer is ticking the way it does. Mm -hmm. And even more importantly, to be able to bring the right treatments to stop that cancer cell from growing. And that's called personalized medicine or precision medicine. And uh, uh, essentially what we're providing with this test is an opportunity to take each person's cancer and understand what makes it tick and then bring the right treatments to the patient with that cancer doesn't work all the time, but mm -hmm. where it does work, it can have very spectacular benefits. And particularly for patients with rare cancers, because for rare cancers, there are rarely well-established treatment paradigms based around the experience of thousands of patients because they're by definition rare, experience is much more limited. And so we're, we're, we, we resort to these sorts of approaches to find ways forward when the cookbooks run out, so mm -hmm. to speak. Wow, that's incredible stuff. Um, I'm told one of the exciting aspects about Prospect is the involvement of major drug companies to provide therapeutics. Can you expand on that for the listeners? I mean, given the huge and often unachievable costs of experimental drugs. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, th thanks for that. So it's a very important part of Prospect. Essentially, um, why did we do this? Well, we, we did it for two reasons. The first and most obvious reason is that the treatments that actually benefit the patient in front of me today come from pharmaceutical companies. No pharmaceutical companies, no drugs. Mm -hmm. There are a relatively limited number of drugs that are available on the public purse, um, particularly for diseases like melanoma, lung cancer, and so forth, but uh, not as many as we, as we would like and not as many as our patients need. Now, uh, the second thing is that there is an incredibly rich range of new drugs emerging on the horizon. This is enormous potential for cancer patients. I think one figure is that in 2018, there were 841 drugs in development worldwide for cancer patients, 91% of which were designed to hit, to hit one of those targets I mm -hmm. mentioned earlier. And those drugs need to be tested in the context of clinical trials. We have to find out whether they work. And the successful ones go on to go on to our pharmaceutical benefits scheme, if you'd like. So one of the ways that we've thought of to be able to increase access of patients to those drugs is through massive growth in clinical trials in this country. Now, clinical trials sound like they're experimental treatments. Mm -hmm. So you might say, well, you know, is it in a patient's interest to take part in a trial of an experimental treatment? Well, the answer to that is an astonishing statistic. Back when I was a young registrar, padding around the wards uh, in 1990s, uh, the chance of a patient responding to a phase one study of a new drug was 5%. Mm -hmm. Low. And actually, low. Mm. Nothing, nothing to write home about. And it remains 5% for chemotherapies in phase one today, actually. So those numbers are pretty stable. But the response on a phase one study of the right drug matched to the right patient, a rationally designed drug is now 31%. Wow. Now, consider sarcoma. Mm -hmm. So my best drug that the government uh, uh, provides access to for patients with metastatic soft tissue sarcoma is doxorubicin. It's been around for 30, 40 years, and it's still our go-to drug. It has a 17 to 21% chance of causing shrinkage. Gosh. 
So if you think those numbers through, mm-hmm. today it is arguable that a, a, a patient with newly diagnosed metastatic soft tissue sarcoma should go on to a phase one study, which is where we're just beginning to use a drug, rather than go on to the best drug we've had for the past 30 years. What it means to me and to the patients that we look after is that providing access to clinical trials of new drugs is now a genuine and important option for cancer patients. And those trials are being run in partnership with industry. So the, the, the second reason for involving with industry is it's not just good enough to do the test and then say, well, you have to go and find a drug because we're not providing it. We have to solve a simultaneous equation. We've got to solve the test and link it to treatments and to do so in a way that doesn't break our economy, doesn't require the government to pay for them because they're still experimental. And that is through expansion of clinical trials, which I believe should now be a standard of care for any patient who's dying from cancer, particularly those with rare and less common cancers. Wow. So that would be a real benefit for sarcoma specific portion of the prospect trial. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So what we've done with Prospect is we've established a public-private partnership in which we, as a non-profit organisation, as Omico, Mm -hmm. the company that we've created for this purpose, provide screening of cancer patients who run out of treatment options and then does so in partnership with industry who will bring more trials into this country so that Australian cancer patients can access them. And our role is uh, like an MC at at an event. Mm -hmm. We are there to coordinate all of the players to maximise the benefit that flows to cancer patients um, today. Not a bad MC role that you've got there, Professor David. Um, <laughs> given given <laughs> your extensive clinical background in sarcoma, what are your hopes for the future for sarcoma patients? Well, look, I mean, uh, sarcomas, what am I expecting? Back in 1998, when I was padding around the wards, um, 88 or 98? Like, are you aging yourself? 98. (laughs) I was like, how old are you really? You're you're tracking okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You're too kind. Um, But back in 1998, for for non-small cell lung cancer, uh, the most common type of lung cancer, we had no no targeted treatments. Only one was just beginning to emerge. Um, Today, 20 years later, 25 years later, there are 11 targeted therapies. And those targeted therapies cover 60% of the population with non-small cell lung cancer. My hope is that sarcoma patients will join that success story. And by democratizing access, by personalizing the way we treat people, that they will, for the first time, be the focus of efforts by industry and by academic sector, by doctors, to try and develop new drugs that will make a change in their lives. And it won't happen overnight, Mm -hmm. but you've got to be in it to win it. Absolutely. In my view, what I'm hoping is that through this expansion of clinical trials, trials in which sarcoma patients can take part, we'll be able to go to a future which will look completely unlike today in that there will be targeted therapies for half of the sarcoma, maybe even all of the sarcoma population. That's not a pie-in-the-sky vision. That's, I think, achievable. And if it's not absolutely achievable, it will certainly change outlook for patients going forward. Really exciting changes in that space that you're talking about, isn't it? Now, I mean, I'm not sure if he's listening, but if our new health minister, Mark Butler, is listening, what would your message be to him? Science works. You should get that on a (laughs) T-shirt. I like that. Get that on your car sticker. 
Yes, science works. Mm -hmm. So medical research should be a part woven into our healthcare system as a standard of care. That should be the standard that we expect mm -hmm. of our healthcare system. And by bringing together our investments in medical research and our excellent investments in healthcare, we can make Australia one of the leading countries in the world in terms of the quality of the services and the quality of its research. And I think that will have effects that go far beyond even the cancer patient population, but to all diseases and indeed to the economy and the growth of the economy going forward. That's the future that I think um, our government should aspire to for Australian cancer patients, Australian health system. Um, well, you heard it here, uh, Mark Butler. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, Professor David Thomas, yes. it's lovely to see you. I mean, you know, I see you a lot, a lot in Centennial Park, but we're we're, we're walking in casual, and uh, this is great to have you back on the pod and uh, and to to share some really exciting news for the future for sarcoma patients and sufferers. Thank you very much. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for the opportunity. Professor David Wood, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Catherine. Um, so, David, please talk us through a little bit about your wealth of experience as an orthopaedic tumour surgeon and now research career. Throughout your clinical practice and even after your retirement from surgery, you've maintained a significant interest and passion about research into sarcoma. What has kept your motivation so high? Well, I guess it all started in about 1985 in Durham in the north of England. That's where and, I was born. Uh, all right. Yes. So uh, there was a 30-year-old lady who came in with a, a, a sarcoma, a chondrosarcoma, and it stretched from a hip joint right down to a knee joint. So we designed a custom-built prosthesis that included a hip joint, the whole of a femur and a knee joint, and replaced that, uh, took the tumor out in one piece, cured her, and gave her something to walk on. When she was facing probably uh, death within four or five years and, and uh, significant pain in the meantime. So that was very powerful for me. Uh, and I, I remember going home and thinking, wow, what have we done today? You know, we've uh, replaced a hip joint, a whole femur and a knee joint. And, and uh, so from then on, I was, I was hooked really. Uh, I then went on to, to do fellowships at the University of Florida. Uh, and at Harvard, mm -hmm. and spent 30 years as a tumour surgeon here, mainly here in Perth in Australia. Uh, so in that time, we've, we've established a, a bone bank. I took the protocols from the University of Florida and established the Perth Bone and Tissue Bank here. We've managed to develop the bone tumour registry into what is now the State Sarcoma Service, which deals with patient care on a multidisciplinary basis and is the only sarcoma service, to my knowledge, that's approved by a state health service in Australia. So um, that is really a, a potted history of my, my career, which um, as a surgeon went up until 2018. Uh, but why am I still interested after after 30 years? Well, it's a case of unfinished business, really. Um, sarcomas are a rare a group of 70 different diagnoses, and all of these diagnoses are rare. Well, what's rare? Well, the definition is less than six cases per 100,000 of the population per year. But if you add up all rare cancers, not just sarcomas, but the other rare cancers, then they together form more than 22% of the cancer diagnosis. A quarter of the cancer diagnoses are rare tumors. And then you look at 
what what is the five-year survival uh, which is generally recognized as a cure well for rare cancers it's 47 percent uh from data in europe for common cancers it's 65 percent there's nearly a 20 percent difference in cure rate and you have to remember that sarcomas preferentially affect young people so I've seen too many young people lose their battle with sarcoma to just give it away now. And I want to see new treatments. I want to see all patients who fail conventional treatment uh, offered a place in a clinical trial. And I want to see us take a more open-minded view towards therapies. Osteosarcoma. So osteosarcoma, uh, you mentioned I still have an interest in osteosarcoma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, osteosarcoma is one of the commonest childhood cancers. It's one of the, it, it's common in not only childhood but also adolescence. And um, the five-year survival rate for osteosarcoma hasn't changed in three decades. It's sixty-five to seventy percent. Look at the other common childhood cancers. The five-year survival rate is ninety percent. So you can see a pattern here emerging of the poor relation. Mm -hmm. You know the. The rare cancer, the sarcomas, that, that the conventional treatment has a fixed cure rate and then that's it. So you and your colleagues are investigating osteosarcoma in particular, as you've just sort of hinted at. Could you explain a little to us about what treatment someone who is diagnosed with osteosarcoma might currently have to undergo and what changes you would like to see moving into the future? So patients with osteosarcoma will, once their diagnosis has been made, they'll generally get chemotherapy first for mm -hmm. two to three months, uh, and then a break from chemotherapy and surgery to try and remove the tumor. Uh, and then following that, if their tumor has been sensitive to the chemotherapy, they'll, they'll continue with uh, chemotherapy for up to a year. Um, so it's a hard road. And, and as I said, that those protocols were introduced by Rosen in the 1960s, 70s. And, uh, and the treatment really hasn't changed an awful lot since then. Uh, what I would like to see, uh, I would like to see a more accurate genomic profiling used to try and define more precisely uh, on a genomic basis which drugs might work in cases, particularly those cases that fail conventional treatment. And there are people, uh, obviously enthusiasts, uh, working on this in Australia, people like David Thomas and, mm -hmm. and so on. So, um, uh, so we're not alone in this view, uh, uh, but uh, certainly I would like to see uh, more precision therapies used for, for those who fail conventional treatment. I'd like to see the new cancer centre um, staffed by clinical academics, um, people who have an open mind, people who will willingly refer their patients for advanced molecular diagnostics, people who will consider precision therapies on a genomic basis. And I'd like that I'd like advocacy for better access for these precision drugs to uh, of these precision drugs for these patients. I tell you a story. I have a friend, uh, 38 years old, and this is not a sarcoma patient. He mm -hmm. was diagnosed with bowel cancer, stage four bowel cancer. He went to uh, a conventional oncologist, was offered um, an appointment in palliative care, uh, told to access his super for the benefit of his family. And uh, that was it really. 
it was indicated that chemotherapy probably wouldn't work, conventional chemotherapy wouldn't work, and that it would have side effects. It went to an open-minded, uh, took a second opinion with a guy, uh, an oncologist with an open mind who has used uh, genomic diagnostics for years uh, and has been given precision therapy. It's now 10 months later. He had a prognosis of a month. He's alive. Uh, he's uh, disease-free. Wow. And, uh, you know, this, and yet he has had to pay $6,000 a month to access this treatment. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what else would I like to see? Well, I would like people to uh, not just applaud every uh, drug that's um, approved by the PBS, but to look objectively at the ratio of drugs approved by the Federal Drug Administration in, um, in the States and the number of drug approvals on the PBS here in Australia. And there's a stark difference. Okay, the FDA doesn't mean that the drugs are funded, but it means they're appropriate and good to be used in a particular clinical setting. So access to drugs is a, is a key factor here. We can actually already define, as with my friend, we, we can define in sarcoma patients uh, drugs that will likely work on a genomic basis that aren't conventional drugs that aren't recommended ordinarily in the mainstream. Uh, but patients will almost always have to pay for them. I was going to ask, so are, are these some of the major challenges that you're facing? Yes. I mean, uh, our, our adult oncologists, the pediatric oncologists tend to uh, do all of what I've mentioned already. Mm -hmm. Almost all patients with a pediatric sarcoma, it, you know, they're, they're offered clinical trial places. But the adult oncologists are, are so overwhelmed with a volume of patients that, that it would be unrealistic to expect them to, to, to have the, the time to be able to um, monitor, take part in, uh, admit patients to, to clinical trials. So we need more time per patient uh, in the adult oncology world, particularly for sarcomas. So there's, uh, I mean, some precision drugs are uh, approved for sarcoma. For example, iribulin. So iribulin was, uh, is a drug that's approved both in breast cancer and in liposarcoma. In breast cancer, the guidelines are that if you're sensitive to aribulin, you can take it as long as you like mm -hmm. until you stop being sensitive and it's, until it stops being effective. Mm -hmm. In liposarcoma, you're only allowed three funded doses and that's it. Because the trials that, that showed that it worked in sarcoma were based on three doses. But common sense dictates that, you know, if it's sensitive after three doses, it's going to continue to be sensitive in a similar way to breast cancer. So these are some of the challenges we face. And I know that orphan access to drugs has been given some uh, airtime, air if you like, for sarcomas, but we need to advocate for, for greater, more widespread orphan-based orphan access to, to drugs that work in common cancers for patients with sarcomas. Professor David Wood, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Professor Glenn Marshall, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. 
Glenn, can you start by giving me a snapshot of your typical day in the office? Oh, um, well, I'm a clinician scientist, so most days I see patients usually first thing in the day. So these are children with cancer and leukaemia, um, usually seeing the ones in the hospital ward because they're sick with more often than not complications of the treatment of their cancer. Uh, our, our ward is uh, not full of people with cancer, but full of people who are suffering the side effects of the treatment of cancer, mm -hmm. which, you know, if you had to explain that to a visiting, um, I guess, person from another galaxy, they would find it pretty strange. Uh, furthermore, we're making children terribly sick, you know, to within an inch of their life before we make them better. Also crazy. Um, but that's uh, my clinical life. And then I have uh, a number of, uh, my, the rest of my days usually talk about meetings with researchers or research-related activities. So I lead um, a number of local and national and state uh, research teams looking into the cause of child cancer, the treatment of child cancer, and uh, the survivorship aspects of people with children with chronic illness included, uh, including those with cancer. Can I ask, what was the driving force for you going into the area of paediatric oncology? Um, I had the great opportunity of working with some very inspiring senior figures in the area. So doctors who were really, I don't think they'd ever call themselves scientists, but they try to think scientifically about their work. And um, there were, at the time I began the pathway, um, a lot of new discoveries in the fields of cancer genetics and uh, cause of cancer that ultimately, you know, in a fairly short time frame led to new treatments. And so um, it was really, um, I guess, a combination of people and uh, discoveries. Um, so I, I went to the States and did four years nearly in, Los Angeles and a combination of a clinical and a research center. Fab. What a great journey. Um, can you tell me what most excites you about the future of clinical research in paediatric NAYA cancers and in particular young sarcoma patients? So what really excites me about the clinical trial landscape in um, child cancer is our personalized or precision medicine program where we're better matching uh, drugs to uh, gene targets or driver genes within mm -hmm. cancer. Um, we, uh, in children's cancer, around about 15% of kids to 20% will have a relapse. Mm -hmm. And what we've been doing over the last six or seven years is, is in fine detail dissecting the cancers genetically and then doing in the lab, taking cells in a proportion of patients and growing them and setting them against drugs and trying to derive multiple levels of evidence that a drug that's suggested by those analyses might work in the, in the patient. And then in many cases, the drugs are given to the patient and we've seen remarkable responses. Um, most of the kids don't survive, sadly, because only children are only eligible for this trial if they have relapsed or, or have a very high risk, meaning a less than 30% chance of survival. So. Uh, but what we are seeing is a signal, if you like, a sign that we, the strategies we're using are detecting uh, relationships between uh, cancer driver genes and drugs that would not have normally been 
uh, recognised through conventional pathology and other tumour analyses. So we're growing that into a, a national trial for all types of child cancer across the next year or so. Um, that trial was called um, PRISM, mm -hmm. and it's within a bigger program called Zero. And Zero Two will be rolling out this year, and that's taking genetic information on every child and uh, their tumour as they come through the front door. Um, and deriving that sort of information about drugs they should be receiving. And one of the things that's become apparent through our work is that one size doesn't fit all, mm -hmm. and you really do need to um, uh, take into account the variety between one patient and another. The second, and I think probably the most important implication for this future study, so doing gene sequencing on every child who comes through the front door, so over... Um, I guess we include adolescents, nearly 2,000 young children and adolescents with cancer in Australia each year. We, we will be able to do um, germline, which means their genetic makeup. And we've, it was realised about six or seven years ago that one in 10 kids who come through our front door actually carry a cancer predisposition gene. So they're going to get more cancers in their life. And so one byproduct of this gene sequencing project about to start is we'll get a map, an extensive map of literally thousands of children um, of what their cancer risks are and hopefully be able to provide them with some advice around screening for other cancers later in life um, and uh, help also predict cancer occurrence in, uh, occurrence in their relatives. So that germline testing uh, for cancer predisposition genes, I think, in the longer term, will, will provide massive change. And this is certainly true for sarcoma patients. Glenn, can you see a foreseeable cure for sarcoma? Um, if so, do you have any idea what form it's likely to take? Well, we're working on a particularly exciting area called single cell uh, RNA. So it, it, any cell, normal or cancer, has DNA, which is sort of the the blueprint for its its um, activities as a cell, what it, whether it grows, divides, all that, but it gets um, transcribed into this thing called RNA, which is a chemical message, if you like. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at messages in not just the whole cancer tissue, the lump of cancer that's removed by a surgeon, but actually um, individual cells within that. And that gives you just an incredibly uh, great, much greater detail of um, what the cancer is. Is it all the same cell or is it different? We're very early uh, others and, and uh, now our group have shown that cancers are made up of multiple cell types, not just the one, including many so-called normal cells that the cancer co-ops to help it grow. And so we're in the middle of a couple of projects which are aiming to use this technology, looking at single cell composition of cancers, to understand when a person is treated with chemotherapy, what's left after that? Mm -hmm. And can that information help us direct subsequent therapy? Our, um, you know, if you like, light at the end of the rainbow is if we can um, link that gene message uh, information up to a drug, because one of the problems in cancer is not um, that all the cancer cells and all cancer patients are the same. Uh, not only is every patient different, but even the cells within their cancer are different. Um, and so our hypothesis is that giving when one analyzes post-chemotherapy tumor samples, what's left, 
you might see there the information that tells you what those cells are going to do uh, and if they're going to relapse. And then the second thing it might be able to do is convert that message information into um, the choice of an inhibitor drug that could be given to that. Professor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening. And if you would like more information on socket to sarcoma, you can go to www.socket2sarcoma.org.au. You can also find out more at Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation, which is www.crbf.org.au. And you can also go back to season one or two of the podcast. Thanks very much for listening.